Alrighty, everybody, welcome to episode 15 of the Godcast Evangelical Protestant Protestantism. Uh, we are we are here uh, with, of course, uh, Rylan, uh, Noah, and fortunately, Balin was not able to make it, but we are joined by uh, Brendan Salvik, who is an Evangelical Protestant, and we are super excited to have him on the show. Uh, that being said, we will jump in with our first question. So, uh, uh, Mr. Brendan Saltvik, what got uh, you, or Brendan, what got you into the evangelical Protestant movement? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on, by the way. Real honor to be on your show and to answer your questions. Uh, it's it's kind of a long story, actually, when you asked me that question, because I grew up actually originally Roman Catholic in a Roman Catholic family. And I would consider myself uh, not by, you know, growing up in a Roman Catholic family, but I, I didn't know who Jesus was. And I didn't understand the gospel and I didn't really get saved and have an understanding of who Christ was until really college. So I, uh, I got into Protestantism, if you will, or, uh, you know, the denomination that I'm in. Uh, when I got saved, the church I got saved in was a uh, four square church in my college town. I went to Eastern Oregon University and was in that town for you know five years. And the church that led me to Christ so happened to be a Protestant church. And that's where my journey really started, where I really started to press in and to really ask these questions about Christianity and about life and about the meaning of life, the truth of life. And so that's, that's really where my journey started. So, but yeah, I mean, to make a long story short, I don't know if you want me to, you want any more details other than that, uh, but it's a long story. Let me tell you. Yeah. So it was there like a particular moment or anything when you knew this is it. Cause I know that in, we were in school, we're starting that we're starting the second great awakening and something that was a little bit of a difference between the first great awakening and the second great awakening was in the first great awakening. Um, you, you would want to, um, it'd be a little bit more gradual. You'd want to, um, change your, change your, um, conduct. Well, actually, no, that was part of the second, second great awakening um, too, but, um, for the, for the first uh, great awakening, you'd want to come back and, and then change your lifestyle. But for the second great awakening, right when you were in those stands, listening to the person preach, that was like the second that you wanted to, to change it all. So was there a moment in which you, re in which you had like a born again experience? Yeah, definitely. I, I would say there's a lot of moments. So my, my real journey began, um, where I, I, the first big epit, epiphany, if you will, where God really revealed himself to me was when I was a senior in high school, I went to Gig Harbor High School, uh, kind of give you context a little bit of who I was, who I am and who I was. I, I was a football player, played high school football, uh, was really big into that. I didn't really think about God, didn't really care about God, didn't think it was very valid or relevant to my life. I was very indifferent. Um, and then all of a sudden there was one night where I had this dream and it was probably one of the most vivid dreams I've ever had in my life. And all the dream was this black background, golden italics letters. And it said first Corinthians one nine. And that was it. That was the dream. And I woke up and I was like, dude, like what the heck was that about? Was I like smoking peyote? Like, is this <laughs> I, I thought I was under the influence, guys. Like, I did have round tape the day before, so maybe I was just completely high off of pizza cheese. I'm not sure. <laughs> the they're pretty majestic. Nonetheless, that's irrelevant. Another story for another day. Um, I go and I look it up, and this is back in the day. We had this super cool thing that came out. It's called Google. That was my uh, senior year in high school. That's how old I am, by the way. Google just came out. 
And I typed it in Google. Google had all the answers. And it said this, uh, God who is faithful has called you into a fellowship with his son. And I knew right away what was happening. And in my soul, I just, in my flesh, I just was like, I know this can't be true. This cannot be right. And I didn't really like buy into it right away. And then I kind of put it on the shelf until I got into college, went and played college football at Eastern Oregon uh, University. And I was studying history. I asked my history advisor, like, hey, I had this experience in high school. And that my history advisor was an atheist, hardcore atheist, super militant to this day. Loved him as a teacher, though. Loved his honesty. And he was fantastic. And he said something that stuck with me. He's like, okay, here's this book. It's by Bart Ehrman. It's called Misquoting Jesus. Read this book and you're going to find the truth. And he's like, if you look hard enough, you will find the truth. I promise you. And so I not only read Misquoting Jesus, which is basically just a critique of the New Testament, how it's been corrupted over time, which I, you know, right now as a 32-year-old man, looking back at my 19-year-old self reading that book, I'm like, oh my gosh, that book is so wrong at so many levels. Like I disagree with it on so many levels, just as a historian. But I was like, okay, it can't be the only guy who talks about the Bible. There's got to be other people. So I, I read all the historical, like professional historians, such as N.T. Wright, Gary Habernas, uh, Willie Lillian Craig, Barterman, Gerd Glutamon. I read all these guys who are New Testament skeptics because I was already studying that field. And then I got really interested in other religions. So then I read the Quran. I read the Bible. I read the Book of Mormon. I read the Pearl of Wisdom, the Doctrine of Covenants, the one that hasn't, well, it's changed now. But at any rate, I mean, I read about atheism where you're reading Nietzsche and Dawkins, the new atheist. And I just came to this realization that Christianity was just true and, and it was rational and that the best inference that there's a thing you teach in philosophy inference, the best explanation and you have evidences. And what I evaluated from the evidence that I've read was Christianity was the best inference of explanation to all these different issues that humanity has, whether it's existential, whether it's scientific, whether it's worldview, um, Christianity better explains these things than other worldviews and other religions. And so I was like, okay, like I, I remember this, my, and this is another big moment, my sophomore year uh, uh, of college, I almost said high school, my sophomore year in college, I, I remember going into my room in my duplex and being like, okay, God, I guess you're real. I'll acknowledge you're real, but uh, you know, this, this other part of my life where I'm uh, engaging in pornography, engaging in partying, engaging in all this other crazy stuff. This is, you know, you can't touch this. Like, and it was almost kind of like I was giving a God an inch and he just freaking took a mile because what I didn't realize at the time God was working in my heart and he was softening me and he was making me receptive. And like, I knew in my head that Jesus was Lord and I knew in my head that Christianity was real, but it wasn't a heart transformation. And so what really did it for me and where it worked from my head to my heart was my friend invited me to this four square church. And, uh, you know, I, I got, to be honest, I got really bored at Catholic church. I'm like, gosh, man, with the hymnals. And I, and I didn't understand that the, the, the liter, the liturgical side of Catholicism, I didn't understand like the beauty of it. Um, I, I have a much deeper appreciation of it now in my older age, but I, I go to Foursquare church 
and they're like playing rock music and stuff. I'm like, hey, you know, it's pretty cool. And they're like, yeah, we have free food. And as a college student, I'm like, food free, like awesome. Like I'll eat that anything to avoid the, the dorm food. Like I'm um, trust me, fellas, this, the school food in high school, it doesn't get better in college. It gets probably worse, uh, but uh, <laughs> I would go there for the free food and the people there were super cool. You're, super, you're like, you know, you guys aren't weird. Like, you know, you're, you're not, you're just normal people. And um, I remember sitting there and they'd always play the song. You're beautiful by Phil Wickham. And uh, what really struck me was there was a line and if, and they probably played it like 12 times, I'd always go there just because I really liked it. And I remember there was one time where there was a line in that song. It says, I see you there hanging on the tree. You bled and you died and you rose again for me. And, uh, oh man, I'm going to like choke up thinking about it. Um, but like in that moment, I just lost it because I realized it went from just Jesus didn't do this thing for just humanity, but he did it for me. It became personal. Um, and he died for me. And that was my sin that put him there on the, on the tree. That was my curse that I was supposed to bet for, but he bore it for me. And it, and it completely, I experienced grace for the first time in my life, the grace of God and the joy of that. And I remember this guy, his name's Jeff. I'm still friends with him to this day. He was the one who discipled me. He's the one who sent me out to ministry. And he came up to me afterwards. He was such a cool guy. And I thought he was just kind of like a Ned Flanders type, like very square and proper. Come to find out this guy later on was like, in a heavy metal band and like we're getting fights oh, wow. just like yeah. the last guy you ever want to meet in a dark alley and this guy gets like i'm just like oh my gosh like <laughs> so but this guy comes up to me and he's like dude i saw and i that was the first time i raised my hands in church because i remember you know coming from catholicism you go to a charismatic church they're raising their hands and they're 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 just they let it go whereas like catholicism it's very reverent and just like oh my gosh there's the altar there's the priest they're doing the uh communion and it's very reverent and you know charismatic circles they're like woo woo and i'm like okay <laughs> and that was the first time where i understood that in that moment where i got saved i raised my hands because i i was doing it not for me and not to be a show but to actually give worship to god and to it was the intensity of the worship that i was experiencing at the time and i was giving it to god and, and he saw that and he came up to me. He's like, dude, I loved how you worship today. I've never seen you do that. And I just looked at him. I'm like, Jeff, I think I'm a Christian now. <laughs> I'm like, I think I'm a Christian. And that's where I would say I, I really came to full knowledge of the gospel. From there, I uh, ended up going into ministry about a year later, did young adult ministry, became a youth pastor. Um, and then I became a teacher. And I had this incredible journey through the, the church, and I've been incredibly blessed ever since then. So that's basically my story. Make a long story short. Well, thank you so much for sharing us, sharing that with us. That is, I mean, yeah, first, that is, to me, that is, that is astonishing that you have a dream, and then it, it gives you 1 Corinthians uh, or chapter 1, verse 9, you said, right? That to me is that to me is like a textbook born again experience. Although I understand that it, that it was the first of one of first one of many experiences that led up to you raising your hands and then um, seeing Christ in that manner. So that that to me is is one of the most just, uh, it's it's just it's just fascinating. Um, and First Corinthians is, is a is a very is a very uh, interesting um, 
text by by Paul because like um, there was a very interesting passage in it that I, that I hadn't realized before, and um, I was I was looking into um, is Jesus God because we uh, Noah and I did a debate on that, and um, uh, in what's very fascinating about um, this certain passage in First Corinthians, I, I forget what it what it was exactly, maybe in like First Corinthians chapter eight verse nineteen, can't quite remember, but it did say that Jesus created the the universe. And then if you couple that with with the, with the Gospels and the whole concept of the Trinity, then it starts to make sense. But I just wanted to bring that up as like the interesting theological point. Yeah. Um, but no, that that verse about 1 Corinthians, you've seen that in the dream, that to me is super fascinating. And then you also mentioned Bart Ehrman too, because I actually, coincidentally, I'm listening to the book Misquoting Jesus right now. So I think we, we can have some really interesting uh, discussions about it. Yeah, because it, it, it's it's a very fascinating book. Um, I think a, a good way to... to to kind of go around it is you could say, well, although in in the book, in the book, um, Miss Gordon Jesus, Bart Ehrman writes that in the earliest manuscripts, you're not going to see like the second ending or the second, the the post-resurrection ending in Mark, like the woman um, caught in adultery in John, the, the, the first poetry in John, the ending in John, all of that, or the Johannine comma in um, one of the Johannine epistles. You could argue though that um, either, you know, he's incorrect or you could say, that doesn't. That's not an issue because the revelation is continuing. You're, you're, the, the Holy Spirit is still inspiring people to add these additions to the Gospels and perfect them still. So that would be an argument you could use against that. I think. Well, there's there's a myriad of different problems with misquoting Jesus, and and one of them actually, Ehrman makes this point, uh, and he actually brings this up in a radio show. I forget the interview that how it went, but. Someone asked him, and this guy's an atheist. They asked him this question. He's like, okay, you say the Bible's been corrupted and it's it's misquoted, and we don't know what the original words said, because that's the whole point of the book, misquoting Jesus. There's more, he famously says there's more variants, and he uses that word very deceptively, variants, um, than than actual words in the New Testament. Yeah. And, and like to make it seem like there's so many of these errors, there's like uh, four hundred thousand plus errors or some some is like page 156 and misquoting jesus or something something like that it's been a few years since i've read it nonetheless um the the issue that i take with urban is this guy's asking him this and he's like what do you think the original gospel say he's like what do you mean and he's like well if we don't know what it is like what do you think it would have said if it wasn't corrupted he's like what it says right now that's what urban says and urban actually admits this in the book is that we can re- recompile using textual criticism, using the manuscript evidence of the papyruses um, to reconstruct with the original words, the New Testament to 98 to 99% accuracy. And so Ehrman doesn't deny that, but Ehrman makes these kind of like sleight of hand arguments and they're, and they're almost border. They're, I would say they are deceptive because it doesn't represent what the majority of New Testament scholars say and the reality of textual criticism within the New Testament. Um, and then I would also say another huge problem, like you point out, like the, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter yeah. eight, and it says it very specifically in the manuscripts that it doesn't belong there. And what's interesting about that, like to give you one example out of many, I mean, you used a lot of different examples in John chapter eight, uh, the scribes actually get that story from Luke's gospel. And it was in the notes of Luke's gospel. So Luke, the writer, wow, Luke, that's cool. it in the gospel, but it was in the margins in the notes. Luke had a very specific anthology where he was following. 
and specific themes because the New Testament writers were, yes, reporting what they were seeing, but they were also weaving them together to give this theological messaging of like Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And Jesus is fulfilling very specific things in the Old Testament, especially Luke's gospel. And it didn't fit with his anthology and it was in the notes. So when the copyists are seeing this, like, dude, this story is amazing. Like, we got to put this in the Bible. Like, let's put this in John chapter eight. (laughs) And it's, it's, that's why, and the, the editors of the Bible are really honest. They're like, Hey, this doesn't belong in John chapter eight. And if anything, that belongs in Luke's gospel. Um, And you even get that remark from John, like, Hey, if we had, if we, if we record, it was like the very end of the gospel of John. If we actually wrote about everything that Jesus did, there would be whole libraries talking about it. So they have very specific things that you're talking about, but Ehrman just uh, doesn't even mention that. And that's something that like Bruce Metzger, a guy that Ehrman studied under adheres to. Um, So it's, it's really interesting. I I did, you know, William Lane Craig does a really good job talking about, you know, there's two Bart Ehrman's there's the good Bart, there's the scholarly art, Bart art that knows (laughs) New Testament is reliable, that we have the original words of the New Testament and that we can recompile them with tremendous accuracy. Um, And then there's the bad Bart. There's the Bart that's writing to a popularized audience. Um, But there are some things that Bart Ehrman does get right, like his recent book about um, did Jesus claim to be God? Um, I think he does it, or it wasn't claimed to be God. Did he exist? I think that that's a fantastic book especially to give to atheists who make this silly argument that Jesus never existed. So that's kind of my spiel on good old Bart. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a really um, good textual scholar. He's, 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 he's quite, quite exquisite. Um, but, but uh, yeah, I can understand why you, you, you'd be like that to you. It'd, it'd be a little bit, or to, well, to, to anyone who's, who's, who's Christian to be like, well, you know, um, the fact that this, like you've said, this the story in John, like that, that's just in the footnotes of Luke. So that's not like really an issue. And then I'm sure you could find um, the poetry at the beginning of John. Is there like an explanation for that? Because what Bart Ehrman claimed was that, or um, claimed was that this was, you know, um, part of like other poetry, and then it was inserted into the um, gospel at the beginning of John. So is there like um, something about that, or do you think it was just? You gotta go back. I got to go back and look at it, but I, that's actually the first I've ever heard that. Um, I don't know if anyone, did he say specifically what poetry he, they, they borrowed from? Uh, no. So, uh, he didn't know the exact one. He just said that, um, given that it, that the theme of that poetry, um, I actually don't really understand it uh, fully what he was trying to say. So I, I probably wouldn't be the best person to speak on this, but like the themes within that poetry weren't really, um, they distributed throughout the gospel. So we, that's why he doesn't think that, that, that poetry at the beginning was part of the original gospel. Although if we're going to use that argument, I don't want, I really don't want to straw man his argument because I really respect him as, as a scholar. But um, if we're going to, yeah. I, I'm not particularly sure. I might've been in a different book. Cause I don't remember that from misquoting Jesus. And I, you know, it's been a few years and I've, I've read, I've read a lot of books over the time. So I got to look back at that. I do know that, certain things that he makes a big deal about of um where they're you know 
like the, the alleged contradictions, like where they're one woman or two women or they're multiple women, or was it just married? Depends what gospel you read. That's his whole mantra. Uh, was it this or that? It's like, depends what gospel you read. And you look back at some of these contradictions. So like, well, the fact is that the gospels mentioned there are women. It doesn't, some gospels emphasize that certain women were there or not, but the fact that there are women there historically is absolutely mind blowing because women were considered an unreliable witness and far in near Eastern cultures, especially surrounding a second temple Jewish context. Um, and especially in a Rome, Greco-Roman, a Hellenistic world, women's testimony would have been seen as valid. One of the main arguments in early Christianity was from a guy named Celsus who says, Christianity essentially cannot be true because it was discovered by hysterical women. Could you imagine Celsus saying that in 2021? No, he'd be, he'd be canceled. <laughs> oh, he would get canceled so fast. And that was the main argument of the time. And yet that fulfills a very important criteria for historians, the criterion of embarrassment. If they're making up a story, if it's just, if the scribes are in there and they're just, they're borrowing stuff and they're just kind of pasting them along. You certainly would, you would never put the central eyewitness to the resurrection and make it a woman. Cause even Josephus in his book, the antiquities of the Jews, he says, uh, Jews, thank God for three things. Thank God. I'm not a Gentile. Thank God. I'm not a slave. And thank God. I'm not a woman. Uh, and then, and th it's just things like that. He doesn't mention, and he straw mans a lot of these arguments and, and he really over, he over promises like, okay, like if you're just, if you have no background in history and new Testament scholarship, then these arguments, I can see why they're convincing um, and to a popularized audience. It could be convincing, but when you really peel back and look at the weeds of this uh, it's very thin, it's very, very thin. And there's a reason why you see him in his academic work versus his popularized work. He writes totally different. He doesn't, he doesn't make these same arguments in the popular, in the academic work um, because he knows better. He certainly knows better. Um, but the poetry stuff is interesting. I don't even that now that I'm thinking about that, that that probably wouldn't be a big issue because the new Testament writers quote people all the time and they, they take especially motifs and popularized writings and they use it and, and refashion it within the historical narrative. Um, you have that particular place in first Peter and in Jude where they're quoting the book of Enoch, which is not a canonical text. Um, it's a really cool one though. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even Paul talks, he quotes a, a, a guy from Kenosis named Epidemus, who's a, he calls him a prophet without renown. Um, he's quoting a pagan prophet. So it's like, okay, whoop-de-doo, he used poetry, but does that disprove the, God, the reality or the historicity or the, the historical trustworthiness of the Bible? I, I would say not. And you, you also have to think about in context of the disciples and the people that were, reef, that were telling these stories had nothing to gain from saying that Christ was risen. This was also, I mean, they had, they gained nothing. If anything, they had every incentive to the contrary. Because every single one of these guys, except for John the Revelator, died a totally horrific death. Um, they gained no political power, no economic power. I mean, really, the only true, like, political power that came was 
like in the late 400 ADs with um, Theodosius in the Western Roman Empire, where Christianity finally became the state religion. Like this is not this is not like goals that the Apostle Peter were trying to realize. Um, they were they were honestly reporting what they say. Even guys like Derek Ludemann are like, you know, it, we can take it for historical certain that the disciples had appearances of Jesus after his death. And they try and dismiss it as like hallucinations, which has a other myriad of problems. Um, but yeah. Yeah, awesome. Uh, thanks so much for, you know, uh, discussing with me because textual criticism, Bart Ehrman, those are all uh, things and people I am absolutely fascinated with because he, he, to me, you know, he's, um, yeah, he... He he's a very uh cool educator because I I would listen to his lectures um and I'm obviously uh, like I said before I'm reading his book right now um so uh, I very much like him as a public academic but I will definitely have to look into um his I guess pu- published scholarly work and I'll have to see what he says there as opposed to a as opposed to his you know huge bestseller books that he's selling to the general public and then I'll also have to look into like what you're saying, uh, even evangelical Christian uh, responses to the claims made in his books um, and even the claims made in his scholarly uh, work. So, yeah, def- I'll definitely have to do that. Uh, so shifting gears, um, you said you were a Catholic before. Um, so how would you say your denomination of Protestantism differs from Catholicism and other Christianity? Um. That's an interesting question. And this is my disclaimer. I would consider myself today. Oh my gosh. I don't know what I would consider myself today. I'm just a Jesus guy. I got, I'm non-denominational guys because at the end of the day, I think every system of theology that is denominational gets something wrong. Not to say that there's nothing particularly wrong with Roman Catholicism, because I think and I think this is a this is a trope that Protestants really lay against Roman Roman Catholics is that they're not really saved or they're not really Christian, and it's like you know the gospel says, do you believe that Jesus is the Lord, and do you believe that you bring nothing morally to the table, that you need His righteousness, that you need His work to save you and to make you clean and make you whole. If that's what you believe. And you, he's, he's the King of Kings, God of gods, Lord of Lords. You believe that. And I got to count you as a brother. I don't care if you're a Catholic or a Mormon or whatever your disposition or whatever like sin you struggle with. I gotta, I gotta take you at your word that you are a Christian. If you affirm that Jesus is Lord and that being said, it's like, okay, at that point it becomes a matter of discussing you know, in-house issues with different denominations. So, um, I would, I would, I would categorize myself as a non-denominational Christian. And there's certain things like that definitely differ from Roman Catholicism. Like I definitely don't say that the universal Catholic church is in Rome. I think the universal Catholic church or the, the Catholic church, the head of that is Christ as laid out in the book of Ephesians. And that there's no mediator between us and God besides Jesus. And I think most Roman Catholics would actually be like, yeah, that, you know, that's actually with consistent with Roman Catholic theology. And obviously there's some divergence, obviously there's some difference, but um, that would, that would be how I differ. Um, And I, and I do think that the greater church incorporates other denominations, other believers that are a part of different denominational traditions, whether it's reformed tradition, whether you're part of the charismatic 
Pentecostal tradition or the Roman Catholic tradition, et cetera. Um, because I think the Catholic church, uh, the, 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 the universal church, um, is much bigger than just Rome. Yeah. You know, I was actually thinking about, um, salvation, uh, and, and one of the issues that I have with people saying, you know, Latter-day Saints, that's not actually Christianity is, is exactly what you said. Um, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you believe that Jesus, as you said, is Lord of Lords, you know, King of Kings, God of Gods, etc., and he, you know, took upon your sins and the sins of everyone in the hum- in human existence, and he died for them, and he rose from the dead, I mean, yeah, then you're you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if we have some extra books that um, people might not agree with, and uh, same with Catholicism, if there's practices and um, bits of um, theology that people might not agree with, as long as you believe that central tenet that Jesus died for your sins, um, then and he's the King of King, Lord of Lords, etc., then then you're saved. Um, and I would even um, postulate, uh, and this this could be um, a point of debate, but something that I, I understand, and you can totally correct me if I'm incorrect, is that the early Christians were non-Trinitarian, and the Latter Day Saints are also non-Trinitarian. So if you die or no not you if jesus you know regardless of if he's god or if he's the son of god dies for your sins um and you believe that then he's then you're 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 saved but um you, you can correct me if correct me if i'm incorrect about non-trinitarianism it, it is interesting and i'm thinking about it for a while because even athanasius who wrote arius and athanasius is the guy who is part of the who led the uh, idea that there is a trinity who's the head guy and then arius um was the guy who was saying hey christ is only of one substance he's just a human athanasius says that christ is both human and god he's he's truly god and truly man it's where the creed comes from the nicene creed um and the athanasius view won out thank god because i think that's the biblical view i think that that is the biblical view of what the text is saying there is a, a trinity and I think that goes way further back than Athanasius. I think that goes all the way back to the New T- or the Old Testament and Jewish thinking, because it is littered through the Jewish understanding. But in any case, that's kind of the sidebar. I would say that there's a part where Athanasius, when writing to Arius, he still called Arius a brother, which is really interesting. And I don't know what to make of that. Now, there is a there is a fine line and a balance that you must have. It's like, yeah, there is a thief on the cross moment where people can come to faith and they could be th- theological morons, then be completely ignorant, or they can believe in something that's theologically wrong. Like you could fail Bible tests and God would still save you. And that that is absolutely true. Like there, there was one conversation I had with a Mormon guy. I'll never forget this. Um, I was coaching with him in football and we were having very, he's a very nice guy. All Mormons are nice, by it's the true, way. Yes, so, yeah. <laughs> I haven't met a single Mormon that was mean, right? Like, and if they were like, I don't know, maybe they were lying about, but in any case, um, this, this particular individual is Mormon, very high up in the Mormon church. And he asked me straight up, uh, you know, Hey, do you, let me ask you a personal question. Do you think I'm going to hell? And I was like, well, it depends. And he's like, what do you mean by that? I was like, well, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and that you bring nothing morally to the table, then you're righteous with his righteousness. You're a part of God's family. 
can you believe that? And he's like, yeah, I, I think I can. I think I can. And I'm like, I'm sure, I sure hope so. I really do. And that's, that's the thing is that that that's rooted in biblical understanding. Like you look at a guy like Naaman, Naaman's a guy who, when he gets saved, he has this come to Jesus moment, literally where he gets baptized and he's healed. And he says, now I know there's no other God in the world than the God of Israel. And that is a proclamation of faith. Uh, this guy was an arm, uh, Syrian worship, the God of Rimon. And this guy is coming to Elijah and he's not going back to church. He's going back to Syria. There's no synagogue in Syria. Uh, he is not keeping the calendar. He's not doing the feasts. He's not doing the festival. He's not even joining a small group. He's not even, he's not even going to bring Torah with him. And he goes to Elijah and he's like, look, I'm going to bring this dirt with me. And I have to go in the temple of Rimon because I'm the prime minister and I got all this obligations. I got to go with the king. And when the king kneels, I have to kneel with him. Okay. But I'm going to put this dirt from Israel and I'm going to put it underneath my knees. And when I kneel, I'm going to kneel on the dirt of it uh, from Israel. And everyone will know that I think Yahweh is Lord. And I just want to know, is this okay? Like, in other words, does God know my heart? And that's essentially what he's asking Elijah. And Elijah does sit there and say, you can't do that. You, that's not that you, where's your Torah Bible app, Naaman? Like where, where, you know, how are you going to connect with Judah Smith on your uh, home church app? Right. He says, Shalom, go in peace. He's like, yeah, that's good. Because there's a balance because he's still going back in the world. He's not, he's not about, he's not saying I got to stay with the godly people. I never leave and not be with those terrible heathens, but simultaneously he's not abdicating to culture and he's still saying that Yahweh is Lord. And that is an amazing text. And that's, that's the essence of salvation. Now I do think in a practical manner, and again, there's gotta be balance. I do think that when you come to Jesus, God won't, will love you where you are, but he won't let you stay the same. In other words, God will progress you and move you into a direction of right understanding, right theology. And this is part of sanctification. And so sound biblical teaching is so important, guys. It is so important. And there, there are some things where you can go down some real rabbit holes with, you know, things like with Mormonism or, or even, even Roman Catholicism. There's some things that you can make idolatrous, if you will. And so, and that you can blur your picture of Christ and what he's about and who he is. But I do think the essence of it is that there's a thief on the cross moment where it really comes down to, do you know who I am? And do you believe in who I am? Do you swear allegiance to me as the rightful king of this world? Because I'm coming back and I'm taking this world back because it's mine. And I want you to be with me forever. And that's that's the whole entirety and the essence of the gospel. Um, you're not saved by the level of theological understanding. You're not saved by the level of your faith. You're saved by the object of your faith. You're saved by the object of theological understanding. You're saved by the object in which you worship, not the intensity or the clarity of that. And that's so important to recognize. Well, that was uh, that was incredibly well said. I um. Yeah, that was um, one thing I wanted to say. Like as well, if you were to argue Trinitarianism to you know Latter Day Saint, um, if, if uh, or you know 
just just uh, you know I I don't know or not say a non-trinitarian um, Christian. What, what what you could argue is this: in the Gospel of John, Jesus is clearly depicted as God. Uh, he says, "I and the Father are one." He also says, um, "Before Abraham was, I am." Um, and also, it says, uh, of course, the poetry at the beginning of John is quite explicit that Jesus was is the Word of God, and the Word is with God, and the Word is God. But if that is not you know sound enough, right? It's just okay. Jesus is God, and then. But how about the Holy Spirit? Where does the Holy Spirit fit into it? And say that we're, we're going to not use the Johannine comma um, in, in the Gospel of, uh, or so not in the Gospel of John, but one of the Johannine epistles, right? We're not. Let's say that we're not going to use that because um, there, Bart Ehrman said that, that was added later. So we're just not going to use that. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's a scene in which um, God, Yahweh, appears to Abraham. And he appears to Abraham in the form of three people. Furthermore, God is you, God is often described as we, we shall create humanity in, in the likeness and the image. So what you could do is you could say, well, God looks like he is, or they are, what, what have you, are multiple persons. So that's, that's what you could kind of argue there. It's not one man as depicted in the Latter-day Saints theology. It is more like um, uh, three uh, persons, three voices, three, etc. So that's, that's an argument I would use if I were trying to convince someone, if I wanted to do that, yeah. Yeah, so what I would say is I did a, a lot of ministry outreach to uh, Muslims, and they're super Unitarian. They don't believe in the Trinity. That's actually the whole point of Islam is that they they say detest, do not worship three, worship one for Allah is one. That's what the Quran says. And I have spent a huge amount of time looking in the Old Testament because they get a little picky. Well, that's like in the New Testament. Can you show me some Old Testament examples? And so I did a huge study and excursus in the Old Testament, what's called the two powers theology. So you actually mentioned one of them where there's three, basically three gods that visit Abraham. And this like event happens so much in the old testament one of my favorite oh, that's cool. is uh genesis 19 verse 24 where god is raining fire down on sodom and gomorrah it has two lords in the verse there's a yahweh in heaven and a yahweh on the ground there's two yahwehs and anytime wow. they meant they mention lord it's talking yahweh which is you know the god the ha elohim the the god um, and then there's another place too that is probably one of my favorites because it's comical, it's hilarious. It's found in Joshua chapter five, and it's really interesting because Joshua is standing on the road and he encounters a man with a sword drawn, and the guy asks, uh, or Joshua asks the guy, he's like, "Are you friend or foe? Are you on my side or you're on my side?" And the guy says, "Neither. I'm the captain of the Lord's heaven's armies." And which is really interesting because the book of Revelation gives Jesus the title of the captain of the heaven's armies. Wow. And to go further to the point, Joshua falls down and worships the guy. And he says, what do you command my servant to do? And the guy responds, take your sandals off for where you're standing is holy ground. Harkening back to Exodus 3, when Moses goes to Yahweh and has the experience of Mount Sinai, God tells him, take your sandals off where you're standing is holy ground. And later on in chapter five in Joshua, uh, Joshua talks about how he met the Lord and had this whole conversation with him. Um, there's another interesting place 
too, where uh, in Judges 13, I believe it is, the birth of Samson and Mona encounters an angel. Now, whenever we see angel, we automatically think celestial beings with harps and on clouds and, oh, you know, just like very, <laughs> like, you know, like just we have a very westernized view of angels. And actually, in the Hebrew, it's just Malak Adonai, messenger of the Lord. Every time you see Malak Adonai, the messenger of the Lord, it's actually God in human form. And Judges 13 actually blazes out. The angel appears to Mona and uh, Mona's like, come and sit with us and eat. And the angel's like, okay. And the, Mona's like, what's your name? And the angel responds, why do you want my name? Why do you want to know my name? My name is too wonderful for you to understand, which is wonderful counselor, wonderful Pete or wonderful Prince, uh, back to Isaiah. And then, and then he makes this, he's like, okay, use the food offering and offer it to the Lord. And he does. And the angel goes into the fire and accepts the sacrifice for himself. And Mona freaks out and he goes to his wife and he's like, we're going to die because we've surely seen God. So it's just this, you have, and this is, everywhere everywhere even john chapter one so you talk about ermin how he's taking stuff from john chapter one um where the word became flesh john didn't create that just based off of greek philosophy he actually gets that from jeremiah chapter one verse five where it says the word of yahweh the word of yahweh appeared before jeremiah and so god visits jeremiah physically Anytime you see the prophets, it always starts with the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's not talking about like this telepathy where God is like speaking in the mind, how we think God would speak. He's physically coming to visit in human form. And so you have these like Christophanies throughout the Old Testament where Jesus is coming in human form and visiting these people. And it's Yahweh in human form. So you, you have this, what, what does this show? And the Jews understood this because this whole theology was, was pretty uncontroversial until Christianity came around. And then they're like, well, the two powers theology can't be true. And so they kind of like, they're like, it's, it's Haram, basically. It's, it's all forbidden. It's forbidden. And because it really proved what the Christian was saying about how God is three in one that there's this co-regency, at least a binary component to God. Um, so if you can get around the binary component that God can, can work in two regencies or two dualities between the father and the son, well, you can easily work through the spirit. Um, I, so I hope that makes sense. I know I threw a lot at y'all. I, I've never heard that. And I will definitely have to look into that more. That is that, that to me is like, it seems almost as if Trinitarianism or, um, well, well, we'll say the um, at least God being, I don't want to say divisible, but multiple components of God existing at the same time. That is pretty pretty much all you have to do is, is read a few passages in the Old Testament, and then you start to understand the Trinity. So it's, it's kind of ironic that the Trinity can be understood through the Old Testament, and then it's clarified in the New Testament, or, um, or at least by people who are thinking in the New Testament worldview, yeah. And, that, and that's the thing. When they're seeing the life of Jesus and through all these historical events, kind of goes full best circle what we're talking about, they're, they're trying to put into words what they're witnessing, and they're using this theological messaging to explain their, their reportage, right? Like the gospel accounts are reporting what happened, but they're also using all these motifs 
And they just assume the read because the Bible's written t- for us. It's for today, but it's not written to us. So they're writing in the culture and the context of the time. And so they just would have assumed the reader would know this. Now, as we as Western people, we read stuff into the text all the time. Like we read stuff there that's in there all the time. As part of the goes back to the denominations. Um, like, for example, Calvin. Calvin did the best he could, but he's reading a heavy view of predestination into the text that's just simply not there. Like, I'm really sorry. And I know I have a lot of Calvinist friends and they'll probably be really mad at me. Everybody gets mad at me, but election doesn't mean salvation. Election means that you're preordained to know the truth. But in the Old Testament, election didn't mean automatic salvation. Otherwise, there'd be Israel's and Israelites in heaven worshiping Baal, the goddess of uh, fertility. Like, you mean to tell me that the, the Israel was a part of the elect? So you mean to tell me because they were elect, they were always saved, and now they're in heaven, even after worshiping another god? Um, that doesn't sound very good. Like that, that, that's, you know, that's not sound, like at all, with what the text is saying. Or is it that we're reading election wrong? Are we misunderstanding election? So I think there's, there's a lot of, if you want to read a great book into this, it's called The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, it's a phenomenal book that will just make the Bible make more sense. And he goes into the two powers, he goes into like divine counsel, a lot of the weird stuff in the Bible that you read and you're just like, what in the world is this about? And Heiser breaks it down and it's very um, robust, scholarly, scholarly, oh man, I can't talk today. There's footnotes in there that are well done. I think you guys would really enjoy it. I wish I would have read it sooner. Let's put it that way. It's one of my favorite Bible books. Yeah, I actually, it's coincidental that I was looking up um, Dr. Michael Michael S. Heiser yesterday, and I saw that that was one of the books he'd written. Um, and we actually referenced him in one of in our first episode ever, uh, which was Did Jesus Exist? And uh, in which uh, Dr. Michael S. Heiser basically refuted the Essene hypothesis that Jesus was an Essene, which has absolutely no bearing uh, whatsoever. Um, but what's actually really interesting is, is um, they do talk about a crucified Messiah in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's that, that's a pretty cool, um, almost uh, prophetic uh piece of piece of apocalyptic uh, Jewish writing. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I actually want want to read this book next now that you've recommended it because I just saw it and I was like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what, what he's written about. And then you recommended it. So that'll definitely be my next book after um, Misquoting Jesus, which I think I have about three and a half hours left to listen to it. Um, but I'm going to hand over the, uh, and, and also all the stuff that I'm learning now, like I, like this is so new to me. I have, I have learned so much from, from you. I, I, I knew none of this. I, pretty much my, 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 I thought I knew a lot, but I actually, I, I know a very small window of, of, of new Testament, um, theology. But what I think is so important is that you're, you're telling us all of this old Testament theology, and that helps us understand the new Testament so much more. Like that is why if I decided to ever study the the new Testament, I would want to get a doctorate in Judaism. So I could really try to understand what all of these allusions are in say the gospel of John or the Pauline epistles. Yeah, the, uh, the best thing I've ever heard was from actually Heiser himself, uh, which he's a he's a phenomenal person uh, to meet, by the way. Fantastic human being. But uh, he said this, that the New Testament is the commentary on the Old Testament. So the New Testament explains what the Old Testament is all about. And the, old, the New Testament is built upon 
the Old Testament. You can't have one and not the other. You got to have both. And, and that's the thing. It's like certain places in the New Testament don't make a lick of sense at all. If you don't have any view of the Old Testament, um, like, oh, my gosh, there's so many different. I don't want to I don't want to melt your mind too much. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that like as a way of like, you know, bolstering in my intelligence or anything like that, because I'm certainly like how you feel right now. Like, I didn't hear that at all. It's like that's me 24 seven when I read some of this stuff. I'm like, oh, my God, like, I don't really know anything. <laughs> You'll, you'll probably do that for the rest of your life when studying theology, because there's a lot out there. There's a lot. All right. Um, could you tell us how much of the scripture should be taken literally um, and just give us your take? Oh, man, great question. Um, 